Got one more to go. Malachi, or if you're Italian, you can call him Malachi. Um, we're going to cover him two weeks from today because next week, um, Billy and I are going to share with you um, the direction of their church plant. It's been a journey kind of figuring out where and what and who and all that good stuff. So Gateway is going to play a significant role in helping send out Billy and Jessica to Lorraine, Ohio. So my Lorraine, yeah, over there. Um, come in here next week, what that's all about and uh, what we can do to help make that happen. So just encourage you to be here for that. I am wearing my official Boyce Dad t-shirt. Or, um, um, it is a dad shirt. This is not, uh, they made fun of me. Like, that's you, Dad. Yeah, um, I, they didn't have a dad sweatshirt, so I, I did this one. But we've got uh, Malia off safe and sound. Um, they do a little differently down there. Uh, we pull in on Thursday morning and like they swarm your vehicle and take every single thing out of it up to her room. They say, no, don't take that, don't take that. Like uh, her roommate, they actually took up the air compressor and his tools and all that. So got her moved into the dorm. Thankfully, it was late, much later in the day. She's like, dad, where, where's, my, um, where's my pillows? I'm like, what are you talking about? Then they come in and we realized that in the trunk of my truck, there's a little a hidden bed, we had put two huge bags of clothes and her bedding and they didn't get up to her room till much later in the day. Thankfully, uh, she did that. But you can tell she's active and busy down there. Hardly any texts on Friday and Saturday because Thursday night um, they did this prayer commissioning service. It was really a special, meaningful time where uh, it was music by the, their worship team down there and uh, the president of the college and seminary down there spoke and he shared how um, even Mary and Joseph had to raise up Jesus and teach him and then release him. And so it was all like, okay, you got to release your kids. And they, they just pull the band-aid off. Well, they, you walk out of this prayer time and they give you some ice cream. So you're standing there saying hi to your kid, uh, saying goodbye to your kid. And they're like, okay. And they raise these, these uh, numbers where all the kid, the 200 freshmen go find their orientation team. And then they're like, parents, see ya. Bye. You like go back to your hotel, go home. You're done with them. It's all at once. We're like, Oh, okay, I guess we're done, you know. So we hit the road and got home and like, and a man, she, the, the tears were shed before that, you know, so um, uh, there's been a few tears shed for sure, but she did say to tell you all hi this morning, and uh, I intentionally said, where, where are you, like, like, I'm concerned about church, so where are you going to church? This morning, she and some friends went to Southeast Christian Church, 23,000 people will be there that weekend. I said, you're going there? She goes, it's just for the experience. It's not going to be my home church, you know. So she just texted. I haven't seen the video yet. Just now, a video of, she says, it's a mega, mega church. So um, that's very different. But I'm curious because next week, no, 23,000. No, 23,000. It's like North Ridgeville going to church. Um, that's, like, that's what it's like, you know. So a little different than Gateway. But next week, the church she's going to, is, um, I don't know how she decided this already, but Bullet Lick Baptist Church. And if I understand it right, it's not B-U-L-L-E-T, it's B-U-L-L-I-T-T, which whiskey or bourbon or something. So it's like, I didn't know Bullet and Baptist could be in the same uh, name, but uh, that's where she's headed next week, Bullet Lick Baptist Church. So anyway, thanks for letting me share that. That's just my therapy and uh, dealing with uh, Malia leaving. So uh, we will um, continue to uh, sort of do life without her. So 
We're going to tackle Zechariah today, and I do want to give you a quick overview uh, via video, so let's watch that together, and then we're going to look at only six verses together today. The book of the prophet Zechariah. The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem, and we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years, and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard, and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, <laughs> a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob or Joseph or Pharaoh, these gave meaning to current events at the time, but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf, and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day, this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile are almost up, is now the time for the messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill those promises, but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they're both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria and Babylon. But then these horns or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket, and we're told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. The third and sixth <laughs> visions are paired as they're both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It's an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem, punishing thieves and liars. The idea being that the new Jerusalem is a place that's purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection, and they're about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. 
So Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes. But then those are taken off and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people and Joshua will become a symbol of the future messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who's leading the temple rebuilding efforts. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it's the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet, and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It's Joshua, the high priest again, and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah, who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out, saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. And so altogether, these three visions emphasize how the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God, which leads to the conclusion of the dreams. It's another challenge from Zechariah, and a group of Israelites come, and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask him, is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, this generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom? And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer, and the book just moves on. And so we come to the final sections that are very different from chapters 1 to 8. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters 9 to 11, describe the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then, all of a sudden, this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel, and then he's rejected first by his own people, but then also by their leaders who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds. And it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in prophet Joel or Ezekiel. But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new Garden of Eden, and there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple, bringing healing to all of creation, and that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters 1 through 8 and 9 to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant, the point of the first half. 
Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. In the first service, um, as I'm sitting down there watching the video, Sophia leans over to me and she goes, you know, Dad, nobody listens to those videos. Thanks for the encouragement. Uh, that's uh, really helpful there. <laughs> Whether you do or not, um, I'm just going to pretend that you do. So, um, all right, grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going to look at the first six verses of Zechariah. And what I want you to see, uh, we're going to see three character traits, who God is. Then we're going to look at three failures of that previous generation, what he calls the fathers, the ancestors. We're going to look at two right responses or right moves, if you will, actions by the current generation, which is going to force us to have a question. Are we going to choose to do what the current generation does, or are we going to choose to do what the previous generations have done? So let's start right in. Uh, Zechariah 1, 1 and 2 says, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, remember Darius is the king of the, the Persians. Uh, the Persians conquered Babylon, and Babylon had conquered Egypt and Judah, and had conquered Assyria, who conquered Israel. So Darius is kind of a big deal. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, and this is what he starts out with. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Now, typically, we think of anger as a negative thing. Kid gets angry. You know, we, as parents, we want to correct them. You certainly don't want anger at school. You don't need anger in the workplace. It has to be dealt with. Um, you know, you think of anger on the uh, sports field, the, ba the baseball diamond or football. It's, it's, anger and sports don't, don't play well together. You certainly don't want anger with your neighbors. That's not a good thing. And, and as common, common as it is, anger in the home isn't really healthy either. But anger does have its place. In fact, I would argue for us as individuals, there is a place for anger, but that's for another conversation. But I want to talk today, just for a quick moment, show you from the passage, how God's anger, there's really something righteous about God's anger. And I want to ask the question, why does God, why is God allowed to get angry? And that's because of this character trait, and that is his holiness. He's a holy, righteous God. He's justified in his anger because of his holiness. And, and if you think about this, these two character traits, God's anger and God's holiness uh, go together. You can't separate them. His holiness allows him to get angry, and his anger is always accompanied by his holiness, which is different than me and you. Because how often is our anger not accompanied by our holiness? It really comes out of our sinfulness. We're going to see that God gets angry at sin. In fact, he's so 
ain't holy, he has to get angry at sin. Now, think of this just for a moment. Let's just step back as we think about this character trait and many others. Uh, If we believe this to be true, oftentimes I think we need reminded that God is so holy he can get angry because the world wants us to have kind of a a scaled-down, fluffy God, just one that's just nice and like like a teddy bear kind of God. And once in a while, we need passages that remind us that God gets angry at sin. And if you don't believe that that God can get that way, I I invite you to believe it because it's what Scripture says. In your bulletins, uh, we put, in fact, if you didn't get a bulletin, we've got more in the back. Um, uh, Not all of them got folded, we realized this morning. But I put in there um, a chart that has all of the, I said all of, uh, a good compilation of the attributes of God. I found this because um, one of the things I'm, I'm working with through with my um, mentor, counselor, guy that I see once a month is, is identity issues. And I'm just continually wrestling with who am I? And you can't answer the question as a follower of Christ, who am I, without first answering who is God? And I realized that I needed a little more just reminding of who is God and what is he like? And, and I just found that chart, chart really helpful. And what I really like about it too is it, it identifies, these are the attributes about God that I'll never have. They call those the incommunicable attributes. But then there's character traits about God that are communicable, like I want to be like him in those ways. And so I encourage you to just take that. You can actually search for it online. You can get a, uh, you can, it, that's a little small. You might need your reading glasses for that. But I just encourage us to continually wrestle with this is, a, this is a character trait about God. I'm uncomfortable with this character trait, but it's a true character trait about God, and we need to wrestle with it. In fact, there's a sermon I, I refer you to by the Puritan Jonathan Edwards. It's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a powerful sermon, and uh, it, you can't get it on video or audio because it was in 1741, so you'll just have to actually read it, uh, but it's a great sermon, so go and check that out. God's angry, but let's look at verse 3. Therefore, say to them, so God is telling, Yahweh is telling Zechariah what to tell them, and this is what he says, thus, back here, I'm going to draw for a minute here this blue here. What's that word there? Declares, okay? Thus declares. Who says it? What's the title here? Lord of hosts, okay? Then he uses this phrase, return to me. We'll come back to that. Then he says it again, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. That's not, we're going to come back and look at that, but I'm having, you know, he says it again, says the Lord of hosts. So you've got declares, you've got says, you've got says. God is saying something. But, but who is saying it? It's the Lord of hosts. He's like, I want you to get this. Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. The word Lord there is Yahweh. It, uh, that is the great I am. Yahweh of hosts or armies. Or another way to say this is Yahweh the Almighty, the powerful one. So um, you know, we've asked, why is God allowed to get angry? Well, let's ask another question. Why is God allowed to declare or say whatever he wants? He could say whatever he wants. 
Well, the answer is in that title. When it says that he's the Lord of hosts, so if you're called the Lord of hosts, you get to say what you want to say. If you're the Yahweh uh, Almighty, you get to say what you want to say. So let's summarize it this way. The Lord can speak his mind because of his authority. You could add the word power. You could add the word sovereignty. You know, God is the sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful, creator, Lord of all. On and on we can go. He gets to say whatever he wants. Now, just one quick clarification, though. Um, God is limited to his character. So there are, like, if he's all-powerful, doesn't mean he can choose to sin. He just can't. Also, in the same way, the words that he can't use are he can't lie. He can't be deceptive. He's limited by his holy character. But if you stop and think about this, our culture doesn't do well with authority, does it? Uh, very little respect. But as followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that we recognize and respect who God is and that he has complete authority. And when we do that, when we submit to that, it's so much easier to hear what he has to say. So what does he have to say? Let's go back to verse 3. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord. What's this phrase right there? Say it with me. Return to me. It's a powerful invitation, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. It's a very simple but profound statement. Now, God's making clear, I'm the, one, I'm the one saying this, I'm the Lord of hosts, return to me and I will return to you. Come on back. Let, let, repent. I, I'm going to come your direction. I'm going to return to you. I, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to restore our relationship. My friends, that is a powerful invitation. Incredible we're going to unpack that a little bit more in a second here, but let's ask the question again. How can God even say that? Let's ground that statement in this part of his character. The Lord will return to his people because of his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy. In fact, his mercies are new every morning. God is a forgiving God, full, gracious, merciful. He wants to be in a relationship with his people. He's a God of restoration. We talk about this all the time, the story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God, he, he says, um, was it 1 Corinthians 5, that we are new, cre create, new creation in Christ. We're new creatures over and over and over and over again. My dear friends, some of you need to hear this statement this morning. God is saying to you, return to me and I will return to you. God is holding out his arms. Just like when Bill read from Luke chapter 19 this morning, the prodigal son goes his way, just spends all of his inheritance and just wastes it away. He's in, you know, working with the pigs and he's eating the, the pig food He's like, what am I doing? And it says he returned to the father thinking there's just no way my dad's going to accept me back. And what does the father do when he sees the son afar off? What's he do? He runs. 
undignified for, for an old man, but he runs and embraces him and welcomes him home. This is a picture of that. And God wants to do that with you and me, sometimes in big ways and sometimes in just everyday come back to me moments. This is an aspect of God that those of us, I know there's some of you in this room, who've been raised in legalism, we have a hard time with this sometimes. Because I, I just, I mean, I don't, I don't, it's not my buddy. Buddy, that's just, that just doesn't feel right. But the truth is, it, this is a both and. This is God is both tough and tender. He's holy. He's full of grace and mercy. You just can't separate all that. But there's more. Look at verse 4. Do not be like your who? Your fathers. That's their ancestors, the previous generations. To whom the former prophets cried out. So this is back in the day, the prophets had a similar word. Thus says the Lord of hosts, even back then, hey, Yahweh Almighty, return from your, what's the phrase there? Your evil ways from your evil deeds. Just make note of this word evil. We'll come back to that in just a second. Now let's pause there. We're going to see three failures of that previous generation. And let's start by using that phrase, by looking at that phrase. He's telling them, inviting them, return from your evil ways, from your evil deeds. Here's another way of saying it. The previous generations rebelled against the Lord's holiness. God's a holy God. He expects holiness from his people. And they said, nah, forget you, God. We're going to do what's right in our own eyes. What's the opposite of holy? It's evil. It's the opposite of evil. It's holy. They did the opposite of who God is and what God had wanted for them. Now, before we like, oh, those people, that's us too, isn't it? In fact, Romans chapter 3 tells us this. Paul writes, what then? Are, are we Jews any better off? He's writing to the, the Jews in Rome. Are we any better off? No, not at all. For, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and Greeks include us, that are, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes talk about creation and the fall. At the fall, this is mankind. And this has got to be a part of, of our presentation of who God is, that God is holy, we are sinners. And yes, then we get to Jesus saves and Jesus sends. But um, what else did they do wrong? Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not do what? They did not hear, and they did not pay attention to me. 
They ignored God. In fact, let's, let's state it this way. They rejected the Lord's authority. Because remember when he says, thus says the Lord of hosts? Like if the Lord of hosts says something, you better listen. And they're like, no, we're not going to listen. We're not going to hear. We're, we're not going to pay attention. God says, God can say what he wants to because he's God. He's got full authority. He has the right. And they ignored his invitation to return to him. As I was preparing this, my, my memory went to probably only one of the most painful moments as a parent that I've experienced. A couple years ago, uh, we were dealing with some significant struggles with Elijah, our oldest, and some of his behavior and whatnot. And uh, there was a moment where things got fairly heated, and, and he walks out of the house, takes, I think, one of, one of the pots off the porch and shatters it and starts walking down the street. And I'm standing out there calling out to him, son, don't leave, come back. And he just kept going. And it was just a really hard experience. He was gone for two days, didn't know where he was at. Thankfully, he came back, apologized, and we, we, the relationship was restored. But it was a very, very painful moment. As I think about that, and I'll probably never forget that, he just said that, just staring at him, walking down the street, getting further and further away. That's what I do to God. There's days and weeks and moments where I'm like, oh, forget you, God. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to pay attention. I don't want to submit to your authority. And we go this direction. It's a good reminder. It's a good picture. But then verse 5. Into, into verse 6 he says, Your fathers, where, where are they? The rhetorical question is, well, they're dead. And the prophets, do, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, these are my laws, my commands, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Think of it this way. Um, here's a third failure. The previous generations refused the Lord's grace. They said, no, forget it. So what happened to them? They, they suffered the consequences. In fact, that phrase that the commands and statutes did not overtake your fathers, maybe a common vernacular is God saying, I told you so. Like, you want to have it your way? Here you go. God made his expectations very clear to his people when he established his covenant relationship with them. Ten commandments, the covenant, the law of the covenant. And he said, this is what our relationship needs to look like. And they rebelled against that over and over again. They would reject his warnings, and ultimately, they would experience the reality of their sin, the consequences of their sin. So you and I, that, that happens to us as well. There's just times like, okay, God gives them over. God gives us over to our sinful ways. Now, little teeny rabbit trail. Um, when you see that expression, refusing the Lord's grace, one of the things that I get frustrated with is when someone says to me, and maybe you think this, and I'm going to call you out on it, is, well, um, I'm not good enough for God's grace. And time and time again, folks will just like, oh, I'm, just, I'm too bad of a person for God. 
And it's really important, but often difficult to call out what it really is, and that is pride. Because hear me on this. If you think your sins are too much for God, then you have a pretty wimpy God. If God isn't big enough to take care of your mistakes, your bad decisions, your rebellion, then you don't want a God like that. God can handle everything you throw at him. So don't ever let your pride get in the way of coming back to his grace and saying, God, I give it to you. Because too often, too many of us are still refusing God's grace today. And any kind of refusal is pride. Here's what I want to do. Let me read to you from the top to the bottom because I want you to see the last half of the last verse and I'll give you two points and we'll be done. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. They said, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways, your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Then here's the phrase. So they did what? They repented. Who's the they? The they is the current generation. They're the ones that Zechariah is saying, hey, everybody, God has something to say to you. Don't be like your fathers. Instead, do this. And so they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he, has he dealt with us. Two things that they did. We'll finish with these two thoughts. The current generation repented, turned around, went the other direction, returned from their evil deeds and evil ways. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I confess. I repent. Now, I think that's good. And obviously, call for repentance. But that extra phrase, in fact, I'll go back to it for a moment here. It says, so they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Here's the other thing I, I believe they did, is they relinquished. It's, it's repentance put into action in this sense. Obviously, I had to have an R word, so relinquished is here. But they surrendered. They said, God, your way is best, not mine. And frankly, I think that's something we all struggle with, don't we? Day by day, moment by moment, it's, God, your way is best, not mine. God, do what you want to do. Do what you propose to do. Your God, I'm not. They repented and they relinquished. Every week down at the bottom of your bulletin, we use that phrase, what is God telling me? What am I going to do about it? What is God telling you? What are you going to do with it? Under that umbrella, I want you to think of this. Two generations, the previous generation, the current generation. The previous generation rebelled, rejected, 
refused. New generation, current generation, repented, relinquished. You and I have that choice. Which one is it going to be? Bill, why don't you come on up? Um, I want you to hear a little bit of Bill's story. A lot of you don't know Bill. He's just the kind of country twangy guy that leads us in worship, you know. So you've got cowboy boots, don't you? You do have cowboy boots. Okay, so I can say that. So it's been fun getting to know Bill. We, uh, a couple years ago now, met, and the first time we met, I got to hear a little bit of Bill's story. Then it came to my attention just a little while ago that on July 28th, Bill is celebrating 10 years of sobriety. So congratulations for that. Um, it was not an easy journey. And so I've asked Bill, and we, we would like to do this more often, so don't be, don't be um, uh, surprised if I come to you and say, I want to hear your story too. But Bill, take a moment and just tell us, like, um, you went from way over here to where you are now, and, and God's in the middle there. So just share a little bit of your story for us. Yeah, so um, well, growing up, I was, uh, I was really quiet and uh, kind of timid and insecure. And um, I kind of felt like I didn't fit in. I was trying to fit in. Um, I lived in Philadelphia at the time, Westchester area. And uh, there was like a, a neighborhood block party one time. And these bigger kids were stealing beer from, from the coolers. And they went and hit off. And they brought me with them. And... Uh, so I was like 10 or 11, and I tasted beer for the first time, and I couldn't stand it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like I fit in, and the big kids wanted to be around me. So um, over the next couple of years, uh, my sister went to high school, and you know she was starting to party a little bit. And um, there was more opportunities for me to drink. Um, my dad was in recovery, um, so we had an alcohol-free house. So it seemed like it was like one of those things that was out of reach that you wanted. Um, so hanging out with my sister a little bit, and I was able to get my hands on some some liquor and uh, some beer, and I would I would hide it from my parents and some of the kids at school in the middle school. I would I would make friends, you know, I'd bring that around, and it just seemed like that was my identity for a while as the guy who could you know bring stuff and be the life of the party and all that. Um, when I was in high school, um, it continued, um, other substances too. Uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, my dad got transferred to Memphis. So I left everything and it was a total culture shock and moving down south. And, uh, I quickly got involved with, with the wrong crowd down there and, um, started partying a lot. Um, drinking more, doing other things too. And, um, you know, I was still able to maintain my grades because I never really had to try hard back then. Um, but I was getting out of school and I was partying and sleeping through my first couple classes. And But since I maintained my grades, I was able to go to college. And I went to um, Ole Miss, which was a party school. And uh, so I had a great time. I didn't really study much at all. and <laughs> didn't really go to classes. 
Um, a lot of my friends from Memphis, a lot of them had dropped out and stuff, but I was bringing them to Ole Miss on weekends because it was only like an hour drive. And um, they were bringing other substances too. And I was the life of the party again, I guess. You know, I was bringing stuff for the parties and um, just kept on drinking, drinking more and more. And um, didn't really care much of anything else, just having a good time. So I was, I was kicked out of Ole Miss. I was on academic suspension then expelled. Um, moved back to Memphis, started working more in restaurants. I got a job at B.B. Uh, King's Blues Club on Beale Street. And um, I worked there for five years. And you know, you'd get off work, and you'd stay down there until 4 o'clock just drinking. Just a nonstop party. Um, 2005, 2006, I lost one of my good friends in Memphis. Um, kind of, it hurt me a little bit, but a couple months later, I lost my best friend I grew up with in Philly, and both of them were alcohol-related accidents. Um, so then I started drinking to kind of numb the pain and kill the pain of that. Continued drinking. I was in a, uh, relationship, um living in sin, and all I really cared about was drinking. Um, that relationship ended. Uh, 2008, my, um, my dad got sick, and he passed away. Um, he had a brain tumor. Mm. Uh, he walked into the hospital the day after Thanksgiving, and then um, Valentine's Day 2008, he passed away. Mm. And uh, that one hit me really hard, and I just... I, kept on drinking. That was my, my only answer to deal with anything. Within a two-year period after that, I lost my only two grandparents and um, a bunch more friends. It seemed like every couple months it was a funeral. Just all different reasons and things. And I got to the point I was really depressed and I felt like my life was plagued with death and um, anybody that I would care about would just die and I felt like um, everybody would be better off without me. Um, I was suicidal. I just kept on drinking and drinking. Um, I was to the point where in the morning I was shaking so bad I couldn't do anything if I didn't drink. Um, waiting tables, you know, you can't really be shaking. So I would always carry something with me and just kept on drinking. And then um, I ended up getting really sick, had a lot of pain in my abdomen area and um, went to the doctor. And the doctor looked at my blood work and said, you know, some of your levels are a thousand times what they need to be. Um, how are you walking around? Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, they diagnosed me with pancreatitis. And the doctor said there's a 50% mortality rate from that. And I didn't really much want to live, so I just, I kept on drinking. Um, in Memphis, I got my, my first DUI. I woke up in the jail not knowing how I got there, uh, not knowing who I hurt or anything like that. Um, I kept on drinking. I was ready to die. Uh, my mom and my sister, they kept on trying to encourage me to go into rehab. Uh, my sister had become a believer a year or two before, so she was constantly witnessing to me. And um, at that point, you know, I believed in God, but I just wasn't ready to turn my life over to him. I wanted to do things my own way, and 
I mean, I was ready to die, really. And then, uh, yeah, so I had a dog at the time, a pit bull named Lucky. <laughs> and that dog was always there for me. So I ended up deciding, well, who's going to take care of Lucky if, if I were to die? So I took them up on going into rehab. And I went to rehab for the first time in Florida. It was a uh, six-week program. And they encouraged me to go into sober living in a place called Delray Beach, Florida, which was uh, right outside of Miami, but it was supposed <laughs> to be the sobriety capital of the world. <laughs> Didn't work out. Um, after a couple months, I met a, uh, a girl who was in the recovery center, too, and she had a lot of issues, a lot of the same issues as me. She had lost people, and we just kept on relapsing each other. Um, she was pretty violent, um, and it was an abusive relationship. I was brought up never to hit a woman, so I took a lot of, a lot of abuse, and... Um, I was down on myself again, just anxious and depressed. And at that point, I felt like, you know, that was the, the best thing for me at the time. I was in and out of rehab down there. And um, my sister found a place called The Way in Huntsville, Alabama, which is a Christ-based recovery program. And the big city wasn't working, so um, I took her up on that, and I went to that program. And in that program, I, um, I turned my life over to Christ, and I, I was baptized. I was doing good for a good six months there. And uh, at that same time, that girl, she went into a program, and she was saying she became a believer too. So I thought, you know, it was meant to be, and I was going to move her down there with me, and we'd live in a small town. And she got off the plane drunk. Mm-hmm. So quickly, I was drinking again. Um, that relationship ended after a couple months, but I was already off and running. So I was drinking a lot, and um, I was taking pills because I was feeling a lot of anxiety. And I would use the anxiety medication to get off the alcohol, and then I'd need alcohol to get off the anxiety medication. And it was a bad cycle. Um, got involved with another group of the wrong people down there. And uh, I got sick again. Um, within like a four month period, I was hospitalized three times with pancreatitis and it came back. Um, the last time I was in there, the doctor said I had cirrhosis of the liver and things weren't looking good for me. He said, you know, maybe six months. Um, I was already depressed. Um, living in filth down there. And uh, I got out of the hospital. Well, while I was in the hospital, after the doctor um, you know, told me I didn't have much time left, I did, uh, I broke down and I cried. Um, one of my nurses was a youth pastor. So he came in and, and we prayed together. And I, um, I prayed, God, you know, if, if he has a purpose for me, then, you know, then do something. If not, then let me die. And, um, you know, I was looking back at my life. There was times where I could see that God was looking out for me. Um, in my addiction, I was in three bad car wrecks. Uh, one of them, a friend of mine had a souped up Mustang. We were going like 125 down a country road at night. 
We thought we were on one road, we were on another, and the road ended. Jumped a ditch, and the tire tracks were like right in front of this big tree, but mm -hmm. somehow we didn't hit it. Um, another time, my first car, we were at a party, I was drinking all night, and I was just gonna drive because we didn't have anywhere to go, and um, passed out at the wheel, rolled my car across the road, and the car stopped upside down. And it just so happens the ditch that stopped upside down was the shape of the top of the car, so it didn't smash the car. Um, another time I got ran off the road going like 80, and um, just I see that God was there for me in my life, even though I didn't want him to be. And um, so left the hospital, I was feeling refreshed, and um, lucky my dog, I still had her, and she got sick and uh, she got cancer, and I had to put her down. I drank again for a week, and within that week, I lost my job. I got evicted from my house. Um, for a couple of weeks there, I was living with, you know, no electric, no running water, and um, didn't have anything left. My house got broken into, anything of value got took, and uh, didn't have much left. Uh, my sister, she found Teen Challenge in Western PA. So I left everything down there, what I had left, and um, for a fresh start and came up north. And uh, I was in Teen Challenge for five months. While I was in there, I went and I got um, checked out with the doctor. And uh, they said, you know, there was no trace of anything. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it was amazing. And... Um, yeah, so ever since I got sober, um, I realized that my life's not my own. Uh, just looking back now on the life that I led before, it's, it's proof of transformation. I mean, not the same person. So I stayed sober in Teen Challenge, came to a halfway program in Cleveland, and stayed sober. And... Mm. Uh, yeah, it's been 10 years now, and in my addiction, you know, I, I thought that bad relationship was all that I deserved and that, and I, I had no idea what God had in store for me. A uh, beautiful wife who um, looked past who I was in the past, and it didn't matter because she saw who I was. And um, I now have two beautiful sons. It's just, it's amazing what God has done in my life. Mm. Yeah. I'm laughing inside because um, we were at a birthday party yesterday for Ruby, turned four. Probably a very different party than the ones you used to go to. <laughs> but much, much better. <laughs> much Definitely. better. There's a lot more to his story. And I encourage you to maybe over time, connect with him. He's got um, unlimited coffee at Panera, so you could meet him at Panera. But um, Bill, tell us, um, we, we connected this week on what song to close with this week, and he just knew right away that uh, what song he wanted us to sing. So I'm going to walk us through communion in a second here, but, but why are we singing this last song? Tell us about it. Okay, so this song, um, when... 
My wife and I, we served in old Brooklyn uh, Gateway there for a while. And this was one song that I stumbled upon that, you know, really, really hit me hard. I know Dan said we wanted to look for a song that has to do with repentance and, you know, running back to the Father. And um, this song just did it all, um, Come Ye Sinners. And the first time I heard the bridge part, there's no one else for me, no one else for me. I won't look back. I won't look back. Hmm. It's, it's just everything my life, and just got to keep moving forward and focus on Jesus. Appreciate you sharing that. But um, here's what we're going to do. Um, let me remind you that God is offering you grace today. God is offering you grace through Jesus Christ. In fact, he, he's saying, return to me and, and I'll return to you. But the only way that can happen is through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. So we're going to share in communion together. But we're not going to, normally we take it together. But we're going to go ahead and just uh, take it on our own. I'm going to um, open up the elements here and, and just have Bill sing. Um, it's a catchy song. You can sing along with it and stand if you want to, but, but let's just worship together. Let me say a prayer, and I just invite you to the table. Focus on Jesus, what he's done for you. We'll sing this song and be done this morning. Um, Father, thank you for your word, your word back then and your word today, that you are inviting people to return to you, and that you'll come with it. You'll, you'll come to us and Give us grace, give us mercy, give us forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We are reminded that he's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, he's the only way to the Father. And we say thank you. We say thank you for his body which was broken for us, his blood which was spilled for us. We give you glory, we give you praise. Thank you for Bill, thank you for the story, uh, thank you for the, the testimony of the work that you've done in his life. Uh, we give you glory and praise for that. We thank you for Mel and the boys and the gift that they are, the family to him. And, but also, just I pray that um, there be another 10 years of sobriety and another 10 and another 10 as he um, serves and leads us as his church family, give him opportunities to, to impact other lives as well. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.